Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking to Dan Osman, who is a coach, a communicator, and a well-being strategist, according to your uh, Instagram bio. Dan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for your patience in making this chat happen. As I said, I, I'm interested to learn as much as I am share with this one, because I think we've, we've both got quite unique experiences as kind of delved into off the recording. So it'd be good to get into it during it. I agree. As I was telling you off air, I'm really excited. And dear listeners, the reason why I invited Dan on the podcast today is that I want to discuss body image in men by talking about our respective experiences with it. Because, of course, as you well know, I am a transgender man. So I was raised as a girl and it took me almost two decades, no, more than two decades to uh, realize that I was transgender, whereas Dan is a cisgender man and he is really big, a really big advocate for mental health and the importance of conversations about body image in the fitness space. So to start then, this is what I ask all of my um, guests and it is a way to get the listeners to learn a bit more about you. So who are you, what do you do and why are you so awesome at it? Oh, I don't know about that latter point. I am a health and wellbeing coach. I think that is the most apt way of describing myself these days, more of a like health mongrel. I know that isn't a clear <laughs> and definitive title, but I've just become, I've been a specialist of so many things over the years. I, I, I kind of pride myself on being more of a generalist these days. So I dipped my toe into the industry as a level two health and fitness instructor, wiping sweat off machines. I then let me into PT. I did some strength and conditioning work when I was at university. Much of that was voluntary. That led to a paid job. I went and did SNC work along with an internship with Saracens Rugby Club. When I finished university, that lent itself to some amazing experiences with professional amateur athletes. We worked with as, as part of something that's called the TAS scheme, which is the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, which is still a scheme I think is run through universities, which partly funds college and university students with their strength and conditioning, the physiotherapy and everything else that entails. So I've worked with equestrian sports, archers, you know, divers, football players, worked with Arsenal ladies for a little bit, England netball, developmental squad, as I said, the Saracens, professional boxers, uh, MMA athletes, worked with a real diverse group and kind of realised from that, I know I didn't know a great deal, I say I didn't know a great deal, only what I'd been exposed to when it came to nutrition. So I went on to do a postgraduate in new performance nutrition soon realised that it's having this awareness of all these optimals, but largely the broadest part of the population I work with is general population, you're kind of corporal athlete. So with all of this very specific knowledge of optimals, I think what led my interest and my own personal exploration in terms of psychology is that 
it's all kind of irrelevant unless we have a, a basic humanistic understanding of the individual that we work with, because there are some people where you can be very directive in terms of coaching, and there are others where it's more non-directive, it's pulling the best out of them. And I guess my my experience with performance sport was very directive, is athletes are there to do a job, they have an understanding of what they need to do, they will do as you tell them, even if there's a typo on, on their exercise plan. Whereas there was a bit of a baptism in terms of, emotional intelligence and communication when I would PT because that wasn't the case adherence would be the issue consistency with the issues speak to people with children with shift patterns with all these other things that are going on in their life so that led me to just a real fascination into people and our different experiences and I've always been quite empathetic too too empathetic I would say probably in my early years and I've tried to develop into being a bit more of a compassionate coach so my coaching has definitely gone through some evolutions over the years and that now consists of predominantly coaching people one-to-one but more I want to don't want to say more I feel like exercise and nutrition is just scratching the surface with people, more a deeper understanding of what makes them tick, what motivates them, what's going to lead to sustainability, and then getting the longer-term health benefits that they're after. I do some public speaking, I do some podcasts, um, I do a bit of writing, I do do a bit of, as I said, health mongrel. And I think that encapsulates it in a nutshell in terms of professionally, my journey. Thank you for explaining. Um, and I completely agree with you about the importance of understanding a person's psychology when coaching them in the fitness space. And that's exactly what the majority of our conversation will be centered around, I think. And I'm wondering if you could start by sharing, you've shared your professional experience in the fitness space. Now I was wondering if you could share about your own personal experience with fitness and body image as you were growing up. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess health behaviors weren't really a thing growing up so I'm from a Mediterranean background Turkish Cypriot my, both my parents are so it was I grew up in a, a kind of mixed culture I guess in that I grew up in Essex on the outskirts of London within London there is a large Turkish Cypriot community so cousins and family they were brought up going to Turkish school and learning the lingo and my real exposure was only with them as family so I never really felt I belonged there also never really felt like I belonged within, I guess, the archetype English society. It wasn't really a diverse school I grew up in. Uh, I was in a much larger body. I think most people go through a phase of, not necessarily a phrase I would use, but puppy fat, I guess, to that becoming more apparent to me the older I got and that becoming an issue to other people around me. And as it is with people in larger bodies is, they know that they don't need telling that but when you move into secondary school people highlight that that's a distinguishing feature so I didn't really know where I belonged my body became a bit of a focus back then it was mixed swimming classes and things like that and when you're standing around little clothing as a teenager you are acutely aware of how quickly people are well I guess ahead of you in terms of puberty but also how different bodies are sexuality comes into it and all of these other things that you're hyper aware of and that was again back in the day of skins versus shirts and being of a much larger but I didn't really want to engage in physical activity because the sports would involve you know getting your kit off or having to have a shower and exposing your body and just feeling a bit conscious of that so it was much easier just to come up with an excuse not to do it 
whether it was sick notes or you know asking my mum to do that for me or, or whatever that may be so food became a real comfort for me and I, I think that's been a safety behavior a large part of my life and still is to a certain degree now you know I think when we demonize emotional eating it's, it's only problematic when it's the only sole means of dealing with difficult emotions and probably at that time it was I like to think like as a bit older and wiser now, I do have a, an ability to diverse that coping strategy toolbox, but if I get tired, overwhelmed, stress, I do recognize my triggers now. Food, and I think that's probably an important point to mention to a lot of people, is something that everyone does. You know, everyone reverts back to food occasionally. Not everyone, but a large proportion, certainly. And I went to the doctors when I was mid-teens, and forgive anyone who's listened to me ramble on about this before, but the doctor at the time said, uh, you are fat, you need to lose weight. And I went to the doctor about ingrowing toenails at the time. So to hear that, I guess, from an authoritative figure, you can, I got my head around other kids being a bit mean. Um, uh, but when an adult or someone you respect says that, it's it's quite scathing, it's quite cutting. That didn't warm me to it. It made me re revert back, withdraw to doing less of that. And it wasn't until the latter part of my teens I just decided enough was enough I wanted a real identity switch it was I guess having an interest in girls that never had an interest in me being hyper aware of my body shape also not feeling particularly healthy falling in with a wrong crowd that probably sounds a lot worse than it is but recognizing the environment that I, I was in wasn't really serving me as a person and wanting to become a healthy individual part of that and I had an interesting performance at the time so I'm, I'm very grateful that my, my my focus was performance initially but with the byproduct of that being uh, aesthetics I wanted to change the shape of my body I wanted to fit into a more of a conventional norm or a societal norm of that and in my early days of university a lot of the adopted behaviors I got into physically I'd improved I guess aesthetically but I'd also found another safety in coping with certain difficult emotions, and that was exercise. Exercise became a crutch, controlling variables around my food. And on reflection, I, I had a little bit more than a disordered eating pattern. I probably, I probably at that stage had a bit of an eating disorder, although it wasn't diagnosed. I was certainly purging through exercise. And but with that came a lot of social reinforcement and applause. You know, I was for the first time in my life visible for for all the wrong reasons is people had an interest in me. I was getting a little bit of uh, acknowledgement and praise for how I looked and my discipline and how rigid and structured I was around my food. But that was kind of the first time I became aware of that having implications to my, my mental health and how much my body and body preoccupation became a focus and how hyper aware I was of how that looked around other people. And I go through points of not being able to look at myself in the mirror or feeling certain parts of my body or feeling extreme, extreme senses of guilt and shame if I didn't consistently adhere to my diet and binge eating periods and many other things that came in that started negatively impacting my mental health and for the first time depression and anxiety were mentioned to me when I was at university I went to the doctor and that was the first time I, I, I you know tried medication for the first time I think I'll stop there because I'm going back. Eight, I'm going back 18 years now. There's a lot to get through, and uh, your listeners don't want to hear me waffle on. Oh, you know, I'm finding it really interesting and intriguing. And what comes to my mind when I'm listening to your story is how many similarities there are between your experience and mine, which 
up until I was 22 was the experience of a of a of a of a woman essentially because when I was growing up I was in a larger body too and I got bullied for it verbally I never got um physical any amount any degree of physical bullying but I was um verbally insulted and made fun of and as you're saying that made me withdraw from exercise and uh, a health promoting eating pattern because I I asked my mom to write sick notes for me uh, and it was also kind of a trend that I noticed among my uh, peers as well there was a group of us the the nerd group and we didn't want to exercise we didn't like exercising we were the misfits that didn't belong in the exercise space we it was almost a badge of honor to skip mm-hmm. PE or physical education and then when you were mentioning comfort eating that was probably I Actually, I wouldn't say I never I, I had comfort eating because at the time or at least at the time I wasn't aware that I was um, using food to for to uh, comfort myself. I think I simply had no understanding of how to listen to my body in that I liked to eat and I often overate. And that's how I um, I, I got into a larger body. But then when I decided that enough was enough and I wanted to, at the time, what I considered it improving my body by getting smaller, um, when I decided that I wanted to do that, that led me to eating as little as possible and exercising as much as possible. I realized that I had a superpower, which was consistency. I could be consistent at the cost of my own well-being. It didn't matter that I didn't want to exercise. It didn't matter that I wanted to eat a pizza. I had a goal and I was going to get there. And once I realized how good I was, I thought, well, if this much is yielding this result, because obviously I was losing weight, more is going to be better to a point where at my lowest weight, I was 82 pounds. I'm five foot nothing. So that's not saying much, but 82 pounds is is a small, a small weight, uh, an excessively low weight for the majority of people who are 16 years old, like I was. Mm-hmm. And um, what I think is interesting about the fact that we had similar thoughts and behaviors around our body and exercise and nutrition is that often women and men are portrayed to have a different relationship with their body image and of course we they do have different experiences but i think what is commonly believed is that women struggle with body image whereas men don't mm. yeah I, I i would agree with that and it's it's becoming more commonplace i think and honestly i don't even think the research reflects how common it is in men because it is still classed as quite an effeminate or female complaint and stereotypically I think even when we're talking eating disorders typically people think thin white blonde uh, middle-class women they don't think you know the diverse group of people and human beings that we have on this planet that all experience body image and I think that is the unifying thing about body image as a discussion is I someone has experienced it at some point in their life you know, I think it's a general impossibility. Can I, can I, um, if you don't mind, can I just ask you a question in terms of the cultural element? Because I always find this a fascinating part because I know there are similarities in different Mediterranean countries. You're from Italy originally. Yes. And I found certainly 
within Turkish communities, one of the first points of reference is how you look. So growing up is I would go to Cyprus and people I didn't even know, like friends of my grandparents would say, oh, he's fat. But that was just a an okay thing to say or, or he needs to lose weight. And it just became a very normalised part of the dialect. And I'm sure like my sister will attest, my mum will attest as well, is that growing up is, is just everyone comments on your body shape. So it's almost this infrastructure is set up to develop this preoccupation around your, your weight or your appearance and throw into the mix with that now modern day society, social media, um, what we're exposed to in the general media, the broader media, and what we spend our days looking at, of course that's going to have an influence. It again reiterates the point why body image is such a prevalent complaint in people and concerns around it because everyone's exposed to it all of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's largely capitalised, you know, these vulnerabilities in people. If we look even at the fitness industry, it is an industry built on diet culture and capitalism, essentially. And that you know, you know, a century ago, perhaps that began with solely women, but men and how we objectify men is an equal measure to how we objectify women. Now, you know, typically boys were always brought up to think about functionality and what they're capable of being big, strong and fast and everything else. And women, girls, pretty little things that are for men, essentially, you know, to, to put it crassly, and how that's evolved over the time, rather than address objectification on a whole, and actually people are way more than just their body shape, which you and I can both attest to, is it's just, we'll just objectify everyone. <laughs> and that's yeah. the answer to it. So I'm wondering, you said that you wanted to ask me a question, but I think I lost what the question was. For Sorry, me. I lost what the question was, because I ended up going <laughs> off of one. In terms of culture, did you find that had a huge influence? Because obviously as, as a trans man as well, that must have been incredibly difficult to go through that period, you know, because I think for want of a better phrase, in certain Mediterranean countries, that is less culturally accepted to be trans anyway. And then to also go through these concerns with your body image from being in a, a larger body anyway. Like, well, tell me about that experience for you. Absolutely. So I was raised in Italy and I moved to the UK when I was 18. So, well, I was 19 at that point to go to university here. And that's where I live now. So I can't speak for what Italy looks like right now because I haven't been for years, if not to just visit my family. But as I was growing up, the culture, there certainly was a large cultural focus on the way that your body looks. But I would say that in my experience, it was different depending on your sex, in that when people had discussions about bodies, if they were talking about a woman who was in a larger body, if they made comments about it, they would usually be scathing comments and they would be made behind the woman's back because it was it seemed it was implied that it was shameful for that woman to be of that size and as a result of that you wouldn't want to talk to her about her body to her face because you knew that it was shameful she should know that it was shameful and therefore she probably was already ashamed and therefore you wouldn't want to tell her because you wanted to avoid making her feel bad but then behind her back, it, it would be commented, her body would be commented upon in a negative way. 
Whereas the way I I obviously witnessed this from an outside perspective, because at the time I didn't know that I was a man and people around me didn't either. But uh, if I saw my brothers, I grew up with two younger brothers who are bro- both cisgender men and my dad was around um, as I was growing up as well. And if I saw them and their experience with their own body, it was accepted to talk about a man's body, um, a larger man's body, in a facetious manner. So you could make jokes about his appearance to his face, um, and the jokes would be just as scathing if you really read between the lines mm-hmm. as the the comments made about the woman. But it was acceptable to make them to the man's face, and in fact. If any man, um, I, I would assume, if they had turned around and said, I don't like you talking to me like that, they would have been called a sissy for not being able to take a joke. Similar to, I guess similar to British culture in that way, it's like banter is acceptable, but what's banter and what's just being mean? And I think that's a fine line sometimes because it depends on the person that you're speaking with because even now, you know, commenting on someone's appearance and when I've overheard children speak about other children in that way is that that's learned behavior like for that to be acceptable that's not banter if it makes someone feel terrible that's not banter but it's it's an individual thing isn't it and you know you're going through this experience where when did you first experience um your gender uh, incongruence so um I, it took me years to realize that it was gender incongruence because as I was growing up, I had no idea that transgender men existed. At first, I started to identify as a, um, a gay woman, so a lesbian. And that was when I was about 11. And um, I only knew that there were people that at the time I referred to as transsexuals or uh, cross dressers. And I believe that they were they were only people assigned male at birth who dressed up as women and they or um, they believed that they had been born as women. I didn't know that there was a, a counterpart for people assigned female at birth. So it never even occurred to me that I could be anything but a lesbian. I, I thought that I fit into that stereotypical uh, lesbian who is more on the what's called the butch side. So I was very tomboyish. I had a very strong personality. I was um, essentially, yeah, I fit the, the, the stereotype perfectly. So it never even occurred to me to question it. The What made me question my gender was, first off, I moved to the UK and the um, gender diverse culture here, even at the time, which was um, seven years ago, seven, eight years ago now, uh, it was already much more developed than in Italy. So I came to meet, I I met people who identified as gender fluid, um, transgender, and they were both um, in a body assigned female at birth and in a body assigned male at birth. So I started to get exposed to more gender identities. And at the time, I was still struggling not to have a clinical eating disorder because technically I was weight restored at the time and I was also technically speaking never diagnosed but I very obviously obviously fit the DSM-5 criteria for anorexia nervosa so when I was weight restored and I also wasn't I didn't 
I wasn't so far gone in terms of the eating disorder behaviors that I would consider myself having a clinical eating disorder. I still have disordered eating habits, but I was trying to recover from them. From the time I was about 17 or 18 to the time I was 23, I spent those years studying so much about um, eating disorders, intuitive eating, uh, how to exercise in a way to promote your health rather than destroy your body. I was, I never had any type of um, psychological or medical help. I essentially spearheaded my own recovery all by myself. And what I came to understand was that when I had my eating disorder, I never related to all of the blogs that I was reading. I really wanted to understand where my eating disorder came from. So I was reading a lot of blogs written by girls with anorexia to understand where theirs came from and what they wanted from it. And they kept talking about wanting to be small because that meant they would look pretty and uh, graceful. And I didn't want to be pretty or graceful. I liked to be known as this type of butch lesbian, so strong. Uh, and uh, tomboyish, and I didn't want to be as small as possible necessarily. So that that made me wonder why is it that I that I feel the need to engage in these behaviors? Then why does it make me feel good mentally at the time to be at this low body weight, to lie on the side on on my bed on my side and feel my hip bone? digging into the mattress. And I remember that distinctly. I felt really satisfied whenever I felt that. And I eventually understood that the reason for that was gender incongruence. Because if I thought about what I liked about my state at the time, it was that my chest was flat. I didn't have a period, a menstrual cycle. And I looked more like a boy. It's really fascinating to, to hear it comes from that because, you know, there's a lot to go through. Anyway, body changes. I think the teenage years as well is because th that's when it's brought to the foresight, I think, for a lot of people. You know, that's not to mention everything that you was going with. But I don't think any teen knows what's going on with their body, really. We're all struggling to find our identity, find our places in the world. And you've obviously paired that with what you was experiencing as well. So to go from a much larger body to a smaller body to obviously this gender incongruence you mentioned as well. But, but that was the epiphany, was it? It was just that, that was the epiphany moment for you. I think that was the moment that led to my, I wouldn't say complete, because I'm not sure that with anorexia nervosa, you can make a full recovery in that it changes your your neurological pathways in a way that I, I think is permanent to an extent. So I can't claim that I made a full recovery, but I think that moment was the moment from which I actually began to make a recovery from my disordered behaviors. So not just, I wasn't just weight restored, I started making strides towards freeing myself from all of the food rules that I had and all of my thoughts about, I, if I'm eating this much, I need to exercise this much, to put it in very simple, uh, simplistic terms. And that's when I started actually thinking, okay, then if I can improve upon my gender incongruence, basically I realized this is what I actually want. It's what I now, that's why a big part of my coaching now is mindset based, because I've realized that just like 
I wasn't pursuing fat loss for the sake of it. There was a bigger reason behind it. I want to help my clients find gain an insight into what their real reason for wanting to build muscle and bulk up or wanting to lose fat and get into a smaller body is because then they can i believe that you can make a better distinction you can better draw the line between what behaviors are actually helping you and what behaviors are not helping you and they're perhaps driven by societal pressures for example because that was the case for me so when i started when i went to the gp to get referred to a um, gender um, clinic here in the uk when i finally got access to testosterone replacement therapy or hormone uh, hormone therapy so gender affirming hormone therapy is uh, is the technical term for it when i began to build muscle and see my body change in a way that was more in line with who I knew I was inside of me. That's when I also started caring less and less about all of the rules that had chained me for so long. But that's also when I realized that there is a line between pursuing a physical in a way for gender affirming reasons and pursuing a physical that's a product of societal pressures. So I personally don't agree with an extreme camp that I see in the fitness space that um, suggests that wanting to lose fat or wanting to build muscle or in any way wanting to change your body is always a negative pursuit. In fact, I help people build muscle and lose fat. It is what I specialize in. I also disagree with the opposite extreme, the, the camp that suggests that losing fat and building muscle is the only fitness pursuit worth um, worth having as a goal. Where I sit is the idea that you have a right to want to change your body, but it's important that you understand where that desire is coming from because I, tr- I coach a lot of gender diverse people. And often I notice that they are pursuing a physique, an ideal physique, that is the physique of a fitness model or a uh, bodybuilder. And they don't know, for one, whether that's attainable at all for them, because there's a lack of education about the influence of genetics and what the costs are of achieving that physique, and also the influence of performance-enhancing drugs and how prevalent they are in the fitness space. But also they believe that by attaining that physique, they will improve upon their gender incongruence. And to me, it's really important to share the message that changing your body can help with your gender incongruence, but the point at which you gain those benefits comes a lot sooner than when you achieve that ideal physique that is often unattainable. And if it is attainable, it's unsustainable for a prolonged period of time. I think that comes from a lot of this messaging around muscularity is masculinity, which is obviously a a fallacy, but a lot of the messaging societally imposed, which is, you know, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts from a, um, as a trans man from this point of view, but a lot of the images I was exposed to growing up in the nineties were 
all of my action heroes were big muscular. They physically embodied what it was to be a man, to be masculine, to be a protector, to provide. And it was sliced alone. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was very much into superheroes growing up. I was very much into anime. If you look at anime, especially, like the proportions are ridiculous. And a lot of the aspirations that we have to look like our favourite characters just isn't possible without the you know, you mentioned performance in arts and drugs, there's a distinct lack of transparency in the fitness space. And, you know, I, I'm I'm very much, for same as you, body autonomy. People do as they, as they please. I just think that if you are using your body to market a product and the underlying message is, if you do what I do, you can look like me, then I need to know everything about that. And if you're not telling me everything about that, you're being dishonest. You are the snake mm. oil salesperson. And a fine example of that is the liver king, because... His sole means of making these supplements accessible to everyone was objectifying himself. Look at me, I physically embody everything it should be to be primal, to be a man. If you eat and live the way I eat and you take these supplements, you will look like me. But he was missing out some crucial details. So the fact when that came out that he was, you know, taking certain things, that was no surprise to me. But what I found not too dissimilar to a lot of the fitness influencers that we have in the space is that I could be doing exactly the same thing is look at me, look at how I look, look at how I live, what I eat in the day. This is my training schedule. This is my arms routine. Let me sell you this product based on me. And that is the, one of the biggest problems I, I find we have because it just, it reinforces all of those beliefs that we should be moving past and stops people from looking at those things with a healthy level of scepticism. You know, so when we are talking about muscularity being masculinity, it's, well, it's not, though, is it? You know, because masculinity could be whatever you want it to be, same as there are masculine and feminine attributes of both in, in all genders. So, yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. Like, How did that influence you as a trans man growing up? Because it's, you, you seem to suggest that it was about being smaller and more boy-like. Well, where did uh, muscularity come into that for you? So when I, at the time I was 22 and I realized I, I fully came out to myself. I There was a, a day when I asked myself, there was a lot of, I, I toyed with the idea of admitting to myself that I was trans for a long time. But I went through a phase where I identified as gender fluid because that was, for me, that was the easy way out in that the way I was thinking about gender fluidity was, well, if one, if at certain um, times I feel more like a boy, then I identify as a man. Uh, if I, at certain times I feel more like a girl, then I identify as a woman. But that meant that I didn't have to tell my family I didn't have to change my pronouns around them. I didn't have to disappoint them because at the time I believed that it would be a, a source of conflict with my loved ones. And I like that. I like it when people like me and which is very common, but in my case, there is a specific connection. I study personality psychology a lot. I'm very interested in a model called the Enneagram. And according to the my best fit personality type in the Enneagram model, I am extremely conscious about the the image that I project to others. And that image is extremely important to me. So the so, point that you 
you're more concerned with that to the detriment of yourself. Exactly. So I, to me, uh, f- for me to admit to myself that I was trans, I had to ask myself if I if I didn't care about what other people thought about my choice, who am I? And my answer was immediate. I didn't even have to think about it. It was, oh, I'd be a guy. That's it. And that's when I that, that was, you know, that meme when your brain explodes. That, exactly. It was a an epiphany for me. And at that point, I decided, OK, then it doesn't matter what other people think. I'm not going to live my life. I'm not going to live a different life, an inauthentic life for fear of what other people might think. So at that point, I decided that I still wanted to engage with fitness, but I didn't want to do it in a self-destructive way anymore. So I started researching. I love learning. And when I want to find a solution, my go-to is I'm going to learn about this. So I researched exercise and nutrition, and I learned about bodybuilding, but I was exposed to it in a way that I think was really helpful because my first exposure to bodybuilding was through Dr. Eric Helms. And uh, he has a really health-promoting, obviously bodybuilding is an extreme sport, but the pursuit of bodybuilding, not of a bodybuilding competition, can be health-promoting to an extent. And his approach, is very much geared towards promoting the mental and physical health of people interested in bodybuilding. So I think that that for me was really important. And then when I started that bodybuilding journey, rather than that the body destroying journey that I had been on up until then, that's also when I joined Instagram. And I started to see other gender diverse people who were really muscular. Um, And that's when the muscularity aspect really came into play for me. And it was interesting because being raised to believe that being as small as possible was the most important aspect of fitness to pursue, the idea that being as muscular as possible was the most important aspect to pursue was very much in conflict with the belief that I had been raised with. And I find that in my with, my, with many of my clients as well, there's always a an interplay between, I want to build more muscle, but when we're in a muscle gaining phase at a certain point, relatively uh, soon, actually, if you, there's a point where we hit a mental barrier where, oh, now I'm getting larger, I'm getting too large. So there's, and this is common in my cisgender male clients too. It it happens to everyone. But it's interesting that the concern with being smaller is, seems to be really strong in the gender diverse people who lean more towards the masculine side that I coach. And also I find that difficult when I'm in a muscle gaining phase, for example, to see myself getting bigger because I, for 20 years, I was told that if I were small, I w- I, that was the ideal physique for me. Yeah, there's a lot of unlearning to do. And I think that's the interesting thing when it comes to coaching is that there's at least this perception that there's this transferable knowledge or with the gatekeepers of secret knowledge. But often people know as much as they need to know is unlearning some of these thought behaviors and uh, beliefs they have about themselves. But when they've been ingrained for 20, as you say, 20 years, that's that takes work. And it's, it always surprises me how people are 
more than happy to meticulously track every morsel of food that goes into their mouth. But when it comes to doing this mindset work and putting pen to paper and putting some of these less tangible practices into play, they're less inclined to do that. But that is arguably what most people need. But they they tend to fall back. They revert to, oh, maybe I need a new exercise routine. Maybe I need a new a new diet. Not I need to change the way I think about myself and look at my previous beliefs, which is such an important, all-encompassing part of the body image spectrum because it's all perceptive. It's our perception through the eyes of others. It's like the most torturous things. It, it starts and ends in our brain. You know, we are in control of that. So irrespective of data and what everyone else thinks of us unless we choose to believe there's a change there or we choose to believe we're a healthy individual or we're happy with our appearances you know we, we all know and we've probably all been in that position and i include the listeners there where someone tells you you know i love you the way that you are and actually like nothing about you that i love is anything to do with how you look in your outer shell i love you for all these other attributes and traits about you but it's what we think of ourselves. And until that changes in the individual, it's not going to be the new diet. It's not going to be the new exercise plan. It's going to be doing that mindset stuff and challenging these beliefs because the only way to change these behaviours is to challenge them and these thought processes. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I have a question for you on this, actually. So if the listeners have been following this conversation and they want to start making this change within themselves to challenge those deeply held beliefs, how would you suggest that they, where can they start? I think it starts with looking at your personal values and just what's important in life. So even stripping back to that, because I think with identity is not important one to deconstruct as well, because so many people uh, live, and this is where it can become a help and a hindrance, is it can be the self-fulfilling thing if we tell ourselves we are only one thing. And I think a lot of people are in that position in their lives. But by stripping that process back, getting more attuned with, What's the individual that I want to be? What do I truly value in life? How do I want to lead my life? How do I want my week on week to lead? We can get a better understanding of what's realistic within that. Because again, it's managing realistic expectations. And then when you have a better understanding from a, I guess, a psychoeducated point of view of what makes you tick and what your values are, is you can start to look at things that you're exposed to with a healthy level of skepticism. So it's great that I find it inspirational to look at someone let's just say like Chris Hemsworth for example but I've also got to understand there's a huge incentive there he gets paid millions of dollars to look a certain way that he's his career there are other things possibly involved in that process actually he has to take months away from his family that is not the life I want to lead so with that what's the compromise what am I going to be happy with can I be happy with the pursuits and the behaviors involved in that process outside of how it looks and that's a, a fascinating one to get into with people is can you engage in physical activity and being health conscious about how you're going to nourish your body if it meant your body not changing and if the answer is no which I think is a travesty and one of the greatest travesties we have in the fitness space is why is that where do these beliefs come from how can we challenge them how do you want to think and feel about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. That is that is excellent. Thank you for sharing that answer. And on the topic of developing a healthy degree of skepticism when looking at what we're exposed to, as I was telling you, in my experience, Instagram was quite transformative in that it was an open door to that led to comparison with other gender diverse men, with other cisgender men. 
And I believe that comparison is something that we all struggle with to an extent. And it can be so easy to be sucked into it if we're often scrolling on social media nowadays. Because back in the day, uh, when I was growing up, I would see pictures of models in magazines. But I wasn't surrounded by magazines. I wouldn't. I couldn't just put my hand in my pocket and pull out a magazine and see. Oh, look at all these women and men who look amazing. Whereas now we literally have that. You you pull out your phone. You, you go on Instagram and you can see all of these pictures. And I'm wondering how. What suggestions do you have uh, for somebody to navigate social media in a way that uh, can be that helps them? How to navigate social media without worsening your own body image and how to how to develop these I, these critical thinking skills to understand what's behind the picture that you're looking at of this really this person whose body fits societal ideals. Mm, I think it starts with a level of this is very into individual right this level of self-awareness because I am hugely aware that amazing physiques are inspirational for people. People find them a great motivator. So I can't speak for everyone in saying that this is going to worsen everyone's uh, um, body image because I don't think that's the case. I suspect longer term, there are huge implications to how we all think and feel about our bodies, our faces, imperfections, whether it's our hairline, whether it's, you know, uh, how thick our eyebrows are or scars on your, all these other things that we tend to focus on based on what we're exposed to on social media. But so I think it's it starts with understanding how much this has an impact on you. So does it influence your mood? Do you find yourself comparing yourself in a negative way? Because again, there are people that won't be. There are others that will spend five minutes on social media and that will send them into destructive thoughts about themselves. It sends them into a bit of a spiral into what they feel they need to do, how they need to change their diet, how they need to change their bodies and the lengths they're going to go to. So it starts with how much, understanding how much that stuff affects you, right? With the educative process around it, it's understanding, I think, first and foremost is what's the the thing that we're playing with here we have these powerful devices in our hands how do we choose to use them because if we're basing our reality on what we're most exposed to if I'm spending hours on my phone every day I'm sending my coach physique updates I'm looking at immaculate bodies that you can filter that you can photoshop that they've arguably had a tan you know they've dieted for a second once I have an understanding of these I can better establish what reality is and what instagram is and with these social media platforms it's with the beast that it is and the beast that we're continuously feeding is what is the purpose behind that post and the motives possibly so if we're looking at supplement brands we're looking at athletes they use that is to you know make me inspire me to look that way but it's largely going to be based on something i'm unlikely to achieve so if that is something that's heavily impacted me, what can I do to reduce my exposure to that? Can I set timers on my social media exposure? Because I, I think regardless of having this awareness of all the things that we can do to pictures, if we are exposed to it, no matter how aware you are of it, you can't completely shut yourself off for it. We're all susceptible. I have times with my knowledge of body image that I will look at social media. I feel a bit crap about myself. Then I'll think, okay, well, maybe I need to stop following certain people or mute certain accounts or try to experience some more of the real world, real connection with people rather than digital connection. And don't get me wrong, there's huge benefits of that digital connection sometimes, but let's separate from real life to um, 
I often describe it as I find Instagram and social media in general is people chasing evidence of presence rather than just being present. What can you do in your life to be present rather than documenting how to chase it? And, you know, we're all susceptible to this belief that we're putting so much value out into the world. But I think there is, you know, a lot of narcissistic element in all of it for all of us in that part of us wants just to be seen and I think that's a incredibly human thing I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that but when we turn to things like social media for external validation and we can't see our worth and value unless we are getting likes on our physique updates that's an issue you know um, I think it's separating ourselves from social media uh, not just accounts but brands that don't use a diverse um group of bodies that are reflective of society as a whole again if you're exposing yourself to the perfect all the time it makes sense that you're always going to compare yourself to that having an understanding i think from an educated point of view is not just the influence of social media but the influence of our peers the influence of our parents as well you know i'm hugely aware as a as a father how i speak about my own body not just how i talk about their bodies and other bodies are going to shape what they think of themselves you know I said it, I feel terrible for saying it, and I often throw my mum under the bus here. <laughs> my mum is incredibly warm and loving, but she does have a habit of always reminding my daughter how beautiful she is. Of course, I agree. I'm hugely biased. I agree my daughter's beautiful, but I want her to see her value in the world outside of that. We commend her on being incredibly kind, thoughtful, trying her best. You know, we we um, congratulate her on her functionality. She does something great physically that any boy would, you know, we congratulate her on that. And I think, you know, being aware of the language we use around kids, how we talk about bodies. And I mentioned, I used that example earlier of that, that other child referring to that person across the restaurant as being fat. You know, that child has learned that somewhere, whether from a parent or their peer, you know. And I think when it comes to peers, especially in the fitness spaces, you know, are you are you in the right company, so to speak, the right environment? So if you are a health and fitness coach and you are more of the well-being side and you're constantly surrounded by physique updates, you know, and you're feeling crap about your own body, that's not going to make you feel any better. So not to disassociate from those people, but limit, put some boundaries in place in what you're exposing yourself to again. Like, you know, have candid conversations with people. I don't want to talk about my body. Do you know what? I'm dealing with a few things now. I'm trying not to talk about it, you know, whether food's good or bad and just being hyper aware of what negatively impacts you without imposing that on anyone else. Um, I think is, 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 I don't want to say it's incredibly selfish, but, you know, objectively it has to be. When you're preserving your own mental health and your feelings about yourself and you're really doing that deep work um, into bettering it and focusing on things like body functionality, uh, what your body is capable of over what it looks. And I think you do have to be explicit with people. Sorry, that was lots of answers in one there, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, but that was excellent. You don't have to apologize for answering my questions. <laughs> No, I thought that that was uh, that was really good advice, to be honest. And just to talk about the final point you touched upon, so you you called it selfish, and then you almost corrected yourself. I uh, take issue with people using the word selfish as if it's a bad word, mm -hmm. because um, I think that there's 
too much emphasis nowadays on the idea that we always need to be selfless. And if we do anything for ourselves, that's wrong. And I take issue with that because then it leads to not looking after yourself. And what I always try to tell my clients who are more influenced by these uh, idea than others is that they can't show up as their best selves for the people they love if they're not looking after themselves and looking and and being selfish is looking after yourself so being selfish in my opinion is a neutral term it it, it I'm, I'm not i'm not a big fan of its negative connotations because then if we always need to be selfless and we always need to put all of our energy into pleasing other people, then where does that leave us? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And just slightly to counter one thing, and not to counter it, it's just that my, my perspective on it has changed over the years is that uh, there's often, especially with the self-care narrative, this this message that you must take care of yourself so you can take care of other people. There's definitely a facet of it, I believe. But what I want people to be aware of is self-care is selfish and that is okay because you are worthy of love, attention, fulfilling your needs, desires, wants, whatever that may be, because we all get one shot of this. I do believe part of that is to be of service to people. I do think part of life is contributing to the broader community and society, positively impacting people, but also not for the reason that you should look after yourself for that to look after others but you should look after yourself because you're worth it as well you're worthy of love care and attention i'm really glad that you brought that up because i i should have said and i didn't that when i make that argument is when i'm talking to somebody who's a who's hearing my thoughts on this topic for the very first time and at that moment in time they may not be ready to accept the idea that it's okay to do things for just for yourself so it's it's you find it easier to get through to them if i say hey you really care about these people if you really want to take care of them then you want to take care of yourself and then over time when the person is more receptive to the idea that being selfish for its own sake isn't anything to be ashamed of then i completely agree with you that we can absolutely do things just for ourselves because as you say we all have one life and it's fine to want to pursue what we like because we like it and there's no other reason for it yeah it's even in the you know people talk about self-care the operative word is self you know a lot of this is self-leadership bringing the best out of yourself self-exploration we talk about all these things about becoming a better human it starts with self you know and that does translate into other relationships in our lives but when we have a better relationship with ourself and that is on the basis of our own needs is we're, we're better equipped to do all the other things that we frame it around as well Absolutely. And I'm very aware that we're up on time. And I just have one last question for you, if that's okay, Dan. Yeah, of course. So we started this conversation mentioning the fact that it's more common for women to talk about or at least to see uh, body image and mental health associated in, um, in the conversation, whereas men, and it is believed or it it was believed for many years and to an extent it still is that men don't struggle with body image and mental health in the same way that women do or even in a similar way that women do so i'm wondering you obviously had your own experience with 
your thoughts about body image and how that affected your mental health as well. And um, you have taken strides to improve that for yourself. And I was wondering what it is that you did and what suggestions do you have for other men, uh, whether they be gender diverse or cisgender, who are starting to acknowledge I have an issue with my body image. And since nobody talks about it, this is one platform where we are talking about it and we can offer some advice. So I'd be really interested to know in to know about what you would advise other people to do to take steps towards uh, improving their relationship with their body image. I think you're actually perfectly positioned to talk about this because I I, I echo some of what you mentioned in terms of just being at ease with who you are who you are, what you value in this world, and having a clearer understanding of what you want out of it. So when I think it comes to when I was finding my place and my identity about my body image and acknowledging that was an issue, it was on the basis that I think I I had to live up to a version of what other people expected me to be. Or I think on a broader, I can only speak as a, a, a cis man, is that what the broader society expects men to be. And part of that conversation is having the vulnerability to speak about this stuff openly. Because just talking in general, whether we're talking about mental health or we're talking about body image concerns, is seen as more of an effeminate thing. So not it's not, not even necessarily a speaking thing. I think even men that are more comfortable with this conversation it's finding the right ears and the right spaces to talk about it, which I think for me, I didn't find at the time. You know, I, I think I've, I've, you know, much as you mentioned that you did is you did a lot of the work yourself in terms of carving out your own identity, what you believed you should be. That is what I believe I did. I didn't have any positive male role models growing up. So a lot of what I based myself on was kind of emulating what I thought I had to be. But then in the process of doing that, realising that wasn't me. So, yeah, being at ease with who you are, but also I think once you are, I, I find now is I'm, because I'm at ease with who I am, because I've been through my own journey, is I want to be, if it doesn't sound too overly indulgent, a role model to other people. Because the only way other men, whether it's trans men uh, or, or cis men, get this conversation out there is by speaking about it. And I think that provides safety and comfort for other people. So it's, again, curating your echo chamber, who you're exposing yourself to, what messages you're exposing yourself to. Because that, you know, you mentioned Instagram and when you got introduced and being exposed to a gender diverse network is a part of the, the problem, I think, with anything mental health or body images, you think you're alone. But go out there, seek other people, like-minded people, seek out other environments. It might be that you're not ready to share your own story, but you can hear about other people's stories and the things that resonate that I think it will give you courage and it does give people courage. And I do think it's also a courageous thing to talk about this thing openly. That's not me saying my own courage, but I think for those people that reach out for the first time and go, I'm actually struggling with this. Because that isn't classed as a masculine thing. That isn't classed as a manly thing. As you said, you used the word sissy. You know, for me, I think back to my teenage years growing up in the 90s. If I'd gone to my teacher and said, actually, I don't want to play skins. Like, I, I, I want to play football. I love football. But I'm actually really body conscious. Can I keep my T-shirt on? Or can I go on the shirt? I, I couldn't have done that. You know, the teacher would likely 
called me a sissy or other people within my year group would have found that out and that would you know that would have lived with me and I don't think kids are in that position in school is to seek out again positive male role models that they could have the these more candid conversations with um people don't have that relationship with their parents sadly so I think you know there are there are many dynamics at play whether it's parents peers whether it's social media that we can just seek out like-minded people because that is what the internet is fantastic for these days is, is yeah. finding finding people that are like-minded whether it's forums whether it's social media pages whether it's you know uh, internet searches of local groups that meet up in person whatever the support you feel you need there is something out there and i think that is a positive of modern day living i agree and in fact what i one of the things i like the most about this conversation is that we gave nuance to everything that we touched on i or you never said fat loss is bad or good or muscle growth is bad or good or comparison is bad or it's good or um social media is good or bad we these are all um concepts and features of modern day living that per se are neither good or bad just like food it's the intent and the use we make of them that makes a difference. And that's something I think is really important for the listeners to take away from this episode. Yeah, but the, I, I find the problem with it, although I think most people's way of thinking, this informed way of thinking is somewhere in the middle, it is very rational, it is very objective. But what we tend to be exposed to, especially within social so, social so, uh, social media echo chambers is the most polarized it's controversial sake for the for the point of controversy you know it's called rage baiting and it's incentivized because it's rewarded with social currency you know if you put something controversial out there if you put something you know um really negative that whether it's for positive or negative reasons that's going to be shared that's likely going to go viral and how people are rewarded with that is traffic you know, which puts them up yeah. on a pedestal. And I think we can all think of individuals with a certain amount of current social currency that promote unhelpful messages that have arguably got there in controversial ways because it's less about the nuance. It's less about what's actually helpful for people. It is what it is. It is for the basis accumulating social currency. It's accumulating um, followers for likes to leverage their insecurities to leverage their pain and exploit them you know you look at most influencers the job of an influencer is to influence your way of thinking on or at least influence the way in which you you buy products and view yourself so again that's the healthy level of skepticism right is that when we take information if it's if it's an extreme polarized either way you know whether it's anti-diet pro-diet is it's probably somewhere in the middle but that's not sexy that's not sellable as sellable i should say that's the gray Exactly. And the problem with um, social media when it comes to that is that the polarizing views are shared the most. And the way that the algorithm has been growing uh, has created this um, issue where most people will be exposed first to the polarizing views. For example, I don't have a lot of followers. I certainly don't have millions of followers like the Liver King or um, whoever else who has a very strong polarizing perspective because I don't have polarizing views. I tell people, if you want to lose fat, you can lose fat. If you don't want to lose fat, you cannot lose fat. And that's not sexy, as you say. 
No, and the people behind this, you know, they know exactly what they're doing from a marketing perspective as well, because I've probably lost count recently, especially is like the amount of, and I'll just use an example out there, not the individual that, that hosts it, but let's just say the diary of a CEO, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't think the host sits there and comes up with titles of all his posts and collaborates those clips together, but the people behind those, they know by putting the most sensationalist bits in that and putting exercise is awful for losing weight or exercise is awful for your health something that sounds so crazy it makes you click on it they know exactly why that's driving traffic and that is a little bit why i refuse to comment on stuff like that sometimes i don't want to help their algorithm you know a lot of these things they rely on click revenue so when you go and watch a controversial clip on on youtube you are contributing towards money in their pocket so we're not helping ourselves with this. So when fitness professionals are doing exposés on what other people's content is doing and the worst sort of advice out there, you're just driving traffic towards it. And I know it's easy content. So I always try to challenge the ideas and not the actual people behind it because I don't want people drawn to that content. That's, that's not what I'm about. I agree. And Dan, I'm aware that if I kept talking to you, we would probably go on for three hours, <laughs> but you've already been really generous with your time. So I'd like to give you a space now to tell all the listeners where they can connect with you if they so wish. Yeah, Instagram is probably the most accessible, I think, to most people. V.dan.osman. I have to double check that every time I say it out loud. I have my own podcast, Dan Osman's Ramblings of a Madman. I co-host, we haven't recorded in a long time, Fitness Unfiltered with uh, a GP and another. Uh, Emma, another sorry for Yeah, so people might be familiar with Emma. Um, yeah, and LinkedIn generally. I, I have a blog, I have an email list and I, I share things by that. So yeah, I'm always happy to answer any further questions um, to anyone that does listen find this interesting and um, I thank you for opening up the conversation kind of a point we spoke about which we didn't get a ta- chance to mention again uh, uh, pre-recording was this opening spaces for people just to get stuff wrong you know I used and I don't mind using an example I used gender dysphoria when we, we started speaking and you were quite kind in correcting me and saying that actually the preference is gender incongruence these days and I thank you for that because I think one of the biggest issues, especially with council culture at the moment, and, you know, we could talk about body image and there'd be be examples relating to that. But part of this conversation, not people not opening up, not having these conversations, not having safe spaces and the permission to get things wrong and not be called an idiot. So I think that's a really important point to take away from it is that we're, you know, we all learn from that. And I learned from that today. So thank you. No, you're very welcome. And just to clarify, when I mentioned gender incongruence, what I meant to say is that gender incongruence is the newest term, which is starting to become popularized. A lot of people in the gender diverse space will still use gender dysphoria, and that's fine. And it is my personal preference to use gender incongruence because I feel that it um, better explains what it is that I personally experience as a gender diverse person. But that my experience is not everybody's experience, and I don't think that using gender dysphoria or gender incongruence is necessarily right or wrong. In the end, these are terms that try to encapsulate an entire human experience, which I think is one of the limitations of 
our language, the human language, it's really hard to come up with just one word to explain mm. what a human feels. Yeah, but that it, that said, that is important to me anyway, because for the sake of this conversation, that is your preference. And I think some people have a real issue with, you know, pronouns and what people prefer to be called these days. And let's don't get off my nose. I'm having a conversation with you. We're both humans. I want you to feel as easy and as comfortable as possible. Whether or not gender dysphoria is the incorrect phrasing, the fact that you said actually my preference is gender incongruence, that's a huge important element of this, you know, much of what we're talking about coaching wise communicate with people on their terms if someone has a preference that's how I'm going to talk to them I think that's an important point to take away from it I agree and I think conversely an important point for me to take away uh for well an important point to take away is that I also want you as the person who's talking to me to feel comfortable asking me questions about it because if I were to shut you down and call you an idiot, then you would stop asking questions. And if anything, you might even become resentful towards transgender people because you were mistreated by them. So whenever a cisgender person wants to learn, I try to be extremely aware that if they say something that I might disagree with or that might feel hurtful to me, it's coming from a place of trying to learn and a place of current ignorance. And if I don't make an effort to change that in a compassionate way, then then we're, we're just going to fight a war instead of trying to learn from each other. Yeah, and that, that's, I mean, that dynamic is such a huge part of most things, isn't it? It's just, I see that as just mutual respect, you know. Um, as I said to you off air is, if I got something wrong, someone called me an idiot and I didn't want to learn and something, I probably would just withdraw. I'd just say, okay, well, I'm just going to avoid that conversation entirely in future rather than, okay, like you've taken the time to say, well, actually, this is another way. Um, I don't feel stupid for it. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I will add all of the links that you've mentioned to your two podcasts, LinkedIn and IG, Instagram, to the show notes. So dear listeners, if you want to talk to Dan, he's very friendly, as I'm sure you've been able to um, glean from this conversation. So reach out to him via the show notes. Thank you so much, as always, for being so generous in lending me some of your time today to listen to this podcast. Thank you, Dan, for being a part of it. And until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.